Welcome to Open Book, cover to cover. My name is Eric Klein. I'm your host today for Open Book. We're going to be talking about movies. Movies are pop culture here in our in our culture, and as such, maybe a lot of people in the pop culture uh, think about movies. Maybe if they put them into categories from from a star system point of view, who's who's the main actor in the roles? Uh, more film literate individuals uh, have have learned to think about movies from from a different point of view, namely. Uh, quite often, who's directing them, and and we we can categorize our categorize our films uh, from from that perspective, and which is a theory that was put forward, I guess, a number of decades ago, known as the auteur theory, uh, has a French name. I'm joined on the line by David Kippen. He's the former director of the Nas- the National Reading Initiatives at the National Endowments for the Arts. He's also a former book critic at the San Francisco Chronicle, and he's on the line because he wrote a book, which is, in fact, a, uh, a book-length essay, or a, a long essay the, in the shape of a book called The Schreiber Theory, A Radical Rewrite of American Film History. That book is from 2006. Welcome, David. Thank you, Eric. It's good to have you on. So so why why did you write The Schreiber Theory? Well, I was just kind of tired of seeing everybody in general, and directors in particular, uh, help themselves to the credit for what I would argue argue in, yes, what you call an essay, or or maybe a polemic would even be more accurate, uh, for what uh, the screenwriters uh, quite plainly do. Um, so, uh, sure enough, um, I was able to find a publisher for this and, uh, unleashed it on the world. Must be three years ago now. And, and what you mean is that, um, generally speaking, when a movie comes out, it's, it's sort of packaged in a number of ways, both for the public, but also for, I guess, um, people who are in the film industry and in the various capacities. It's packaged as a, as, as mainly the product of the mind of the director. Oh, yeah, and that's no coincidence. I mean, in part, it's contractual. You know, the Writers Guild and the Directors Guild enter into negotiations periodically, sometimes with the threat of a, strip, uh, the threat of a strike behind them. Um, you know, and, you know, the reason that the director's credit appears last and therefore with the greatest impact on the screen, the reason it appears at the very bottom of the film poster, but oftentimes with what's called possessory credit, as in Steven Spielberg Schindler's List, for example, this is all hammered out in the course of negotiation. Right, and when you Say, and, when you uh, say appears last, you mean at, at the beginning of the movie it appears last. At the end of the movie, it, it usually appears first. Yes, absolutely. Um, it's it's uh, you know it's quite deliberate. These these points are fought over in the course of of uh, pitched battles at the negotiating table, and uh, for whatever reason, the directors seem to win a lot more of those battles than the screenwriters do. And the the, the reasons for that are really fascinating to me, and we'll maybe we'll we'll bat some back and forth and and try to come up with some theories, but. But you are arguing that, in fact, um, at least to a certain extent, the writer of, of the movie deserves credit for, for, for writing. It seems almost tautological, doesn't it? It feels as if a case that makes itself without human intervention. Yes. Uh, you know, and notwithstanding, of course, the fact that over the years, directors have felt perfectly welcome to rewrite with or without credit, um, you know, scripts that are entrusted to them frequently mere days before the start of principal photography. But yes, um, you know, the writer or alas, all too often the writers, um, are largely responsible for what we see on the screen. But then I don't just mean the dialogue, um, which would be, you know, the lazy assumption, but in fact, what's the first thing that you see when you open up a screenplay? Fade in. Um, you know, at what's uh, 
classically the, the screenwriter's responsibility in the course of adapting a book or a play to open it out, to make it visual. It's not a simple uh, reductive uh, uh, matter of you know entrusting the words to the screenwriter and the pictures to the director. A screenplay is, by its very nature, a blueprint for a visual art. And so other than just uh, film critics, you know, sort of batting this around in coffee shops, what sort of impact on on the actual world of film culture has this um, the the theory, the auteur theory that directors are really the primary authors of the film and, and writers sort of taking a backseat? Almost invisibly, sometimes. What what impact has oh, that had on on movies? Yeah, I mean that's a terrific question because, of course, theories aren't just you know these these you know abstract conceptions with no basis in reality. In fact, um, you know it, it, the Schreiber theory and the auteur theory, uh, to an even greater extent, are, um, are are you know object lessons in the Heisenberg certainty principle, which you may remember from physics, is basically you can't observe a system without affecting that system. Sure enough, the auteur theory, when it came along in the 1950s, um, didn't just purport to describe how movies get made. It wound up affecting the way movies get made because, of course, by giving all this credit to directors, directors wound up getting a whole lot more power. Uh, studios, of course, uh, especially in the 1960s as the, the system was collapsing, um, you know, hitched their wagons to whatever the next big thing was. In this case, it tended to be, you know, these young auteur directors, you know, Dennis Hopper, um, famously in the case of, uh, of Easy Rider, not somebody the studios probably would have given the time of day to, but in the wake of flops like, uh, you know, Cleopatra and Star and all these lavish, Cinerama uh, disasters of the 1960s, you know, they'd give a camera to anybody, and sure enough, Dennis Hopper um, made himself a terrific movie, an easy writer. But of course, how did he make that terrific movie? Well, he picked up a script that had been written by the great novelist Terry Southern, and said, well, I think I could do something with this. Then, unfortunately, with the even greater, almost unlimited power he's given on the basis of easy writer's success, he thought, wow, this is easy. I'm going to go up into the uh, Andes, smoke a whole bunch of peyote, and make one of these without a screenplay because I'm a genius. That's what it says in the papers. That's what, you know, the interviews all, all uh, you know, all would have uh, the general public believe. Well, he came back down from Machu Picchu with a movie called The Last Movie. And uh, and it wasn't quite The Last Movie, but if there were more like it, it might well have been because um, it was a movie unmistakably that had been shot without a script or or uh, a terribly coherent thought in the filmmaker's head and we're speaking with david kippen he's the writer of the book the schreiber theory schreiber is yiddish for writer and uh, the the book um puts forth that that the screenwriters need more credit for the work that they do contributing to film culture and the individual movies that they write. I just, uh, while you were speaking, IMDB'd over to Easy Rider, and the first two writers' credits uh, on that website, which is generally relatively authoritative, are Dennis Hopper and, and Peter Fonda with Terry Southern. You have to click uh, See More to find out who yeah, wrote that's the kind movie. Of bad thing. I mean, you know, it, we live in a kind of a hinge era in the way we apprehend movies, and it's quite exciting. I mean, once upon a time, we were pretty much at the mercy of, you know, whatever new movies were out there or whatever, you know, vintage classic double feature whoever was running the Castro or whatever the, the you know the great neighborhood revival theater was decided to program for us whereas now 
thanks to something like Netflix, we can become our own revival programmer. And thanks to something like IMDb, we can educate ourselves about those names that tend to crop up in the credits of movies we love. And we can therefore seek out more movies in whose credits these uh, people's names appear. But yes, all too often, for example, on Netflix, you can't search by screenwriter. You can only search by star or by director. And on IMDb, yes, as you quite rightly point out, when there are multiple screenwriters, um, oftentimes, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the most significant name, the original name on the script before other fingerprints like his fellow, uh, uh, you know, filmmakers, Hopper in this case and Fonda. And I don't want to rag on Hopper. This is a man, it's, it's been reported lately without too much longer to live. And he did find himself associated with a lot of wonderful creative people and was one himself. He just wasn't a writer and should never have tried to pass himself off as one. So yes, you have to click through to another page. And, ironically, on IMDb to find the contributions of Terry Southern, a very gifted man who made not only this, but, you know, wrote the book Blue Movie, wrote the book Candy, uh, wrote the screenplay, or at least part of it for Dr. Strangelove, a wonderful, creative, larger-than-life uh, satiric figure in the 1960s and 70s who's been more or less airbrushed out of film history. And David Kippen, in your book, The Schreiber Theory, one of the things that you do, in addition to trying to push forward this idea that screenwriters need more credit for writing movies, you, you uh, suggest that if we start to view um, films as a body of work uh, from from the... You know, under underneath the column of of who wrote them, that actually very interesting themes uh, crop up. Is, is that the case for 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 Terry? Oh. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, it, the auteur theory is basically a myth that came true, and the movies have been suffering for it ever since. Um, you know, if you start to pay attention to screenwriters, a whole lot of interesting and potentially salubrious things could well happen. Um, you know, writers would get more of the credit, directors would get less, directors would get less of the power to rewrite screenwriters' work. Um, screenwriters themselves might start to take themselves a little more seriously, might not be quite so eager to rewrite each other into incomprehensibility. Um, you know, they might, in the same way that directors oftentimes are paralyzed by thought of their own reputation, screenwriters might themselves give a little consideration to uh, passing up work that's beneath them and, uh, you know, trying to stay truer to their own gifts. Yeah, because most, most movies, uh, a screenwriter will get away uh, without really having to take credit for their work. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. A screenwriter I really admire, I'm actually going to be discussing his work as sort of a case study uh, in a one campus, one book um, reading uh, exercise in, in Louisville, Kentucky next month. Um, Steve Zalian. That's a film a guy, school discussion you're going to have? Uh, yeah, um, it's actually a, an MFA program. It's for writers as well as as well as uh, film students, uh, novelists as well as screenwriters. But you know, they asked me if I, I wanted to you know have them brush up their knowledge of a particular screenwriter so mm -hmm. that I could talk about him and you know rest assured that most of the student body would have seen him. And I said Zalian because he's a fascinating guy. This is a guy whose first script was um, I think uh, um, oh you, you remember the picture with Timothy Hutton and uh, uh, the Falcon and the Snowman. Um, let's sure. see. And then I'm not going to get his whole filmography, but, you know, uh, he eventually directed a movie, not a bad movie, actually, called Searching for Bobby Fischer. His most famous script at this point is probably still um, Schindler's List. But he just took the assignment 
to write what I gather is not just one, but all three movies adapted from these terrific um, Swedish mystery novels, the, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and its two sequels by Stieg Larsson. And I'm sure they'll be terrific in the same way that the movies um, Steve Cloves has written, seven of them now, or I guess it's going to be eight from the Harry Potter novels, are very sturdy, workmanlike uh, pieces of screenwriter's craftsmanship. And, you know, he deserves, you know, uh, the credit he's gotten for them. But, I mean, it just seems like uh, altogether too easy an assignment to accept, and I'm sure it keeps, you know, the braces on Cloves and Zalian's teeth. But when you consider that Steve Cloves before that wrote such really ambitious movies as The Fabulous Baker Boys, and yet it's been, you know, easily a decade since he had a credit on anything that wasn't adapted from J.K. Rowling, it just seems a shame. And which writer is that that you're speaking of? Um, that was Steve Cloves. Um, and, uh, and, and before him, uh, Steve Zalian, a couple of very talented screenwriters who've managed to, you know, cobble together rather distinguished careers without, except in the one, uh, instance of searching for Bobby Fischer in Zalian's case, having to resort to directing, which I think oftentimes can be deleterious to a screenwriter's overall, you know, uh, trajectory as as a filmmaker um and yet you know they've they've you know taken not just these um easy adaptations they've taken uh on the responsibility of adapting multiple uh film series and you know that's like you know taking you know devoting a decade or so of your life mm-hmm. To, to, you know, what I think you would have to admit, although, you know, adaptation is an underrated art, um, is not ultimately as creative as writing original screenplays. Of course, Hollywood is more inhospitable to original screenplays now than it's ever been. They, they, you know, Adamy has a devil of a time just filling out the original screenplay category with five nominees every year. So what you're suggesting is that if, if writers of screenplays were um, given more credit for, for the quality of their work, we might get more quality movies from them instead of them having to uh, you know, pay their mortgage by, by adapting uh, all of the Harry Potter movies. I'm suggesting exactly that, Eric. You put it very well. And so, what what else can we what else can we glean from from your Schreiber theory about? I mean, the the auteur theory, the one where the director is the primary author of their work. You know, if we take Hitchcock, I guess is the um, poster boy, although he was yeah. working prior to the theory uh, being named. Well, before and after, and it's interesting that after the auteur theory came along, uh, Hitchcock's movies didn't necessarily get better. He himself, I think, started to believe his own press clips, and so we, you know, had to make do with movies like Marnie and the tortured critical contortions that people had to put them through, put themselves through, trying to convince themselves that it was as good a movie as Spellbound or Notorious or Strangers on a Train. Strangers on a Train, by the way, written by Raymond Chandler, um, who was, in addition to being, you know arguably the greatest mystery novelist of all time, was a terrific screenwriter, has his name on the script of Double Indemnity as well. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to watch a double feature of Double Indemnity and Strangers on a Train and think about them as Raymond Chandler's uh, films, not instead of, but in addition to watching you know, uh, these movies on double bills with other co-features and thinking of them as Hitchcock movies or Billy Wilder movies. And so part of your book, uh, David Kippen, uh, part of your book, The Schreiber Theory, sort of um, pulls apart, pulls, pulls themes out of writers' careers that were otherwise sort of um, overlooked before before they were examined, maybe you want to uh, address a few of them that uh, that stand out. 
Oh, well, sure, I'd be happy to. I mean, um, you know, if, if I learned nothing cranking out one or two book reviews a week for the San Francisco Chronicle, it was, you know, a certain knack for uh, seeing recurrent themes over the course of a writer's career. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, if you look at somebody like, oh, who's a good example? Dalton Trumbo, uh, great screenwriter, the man who broke the blacklist. His scripts for Exodus and rather more distinguishedly, uh, um, I think you'd have to say, um, uh, Spartacus, um, are, are, you know, uh, pretty good, especially Spartacus is a masterpiece. But I mean, mm-hmm. look at Spartacus, its famous last scene, adapted from, from you know, the, the, the terrific leftist writer uh, Howard Fast's novel about the Greek slave uprising. Um, the last scene of Spartacus, where the rebellion has been put down, and, um, you know, uh, the, uh, the, the uh, emperor um, looks out across uh, all of the slaves who've been uh, shackled uh, and are about to be executed. And he says, who among you is Spartacus? And Kirk Douglas, playing Spartacus, is sitting there. And you see him, you know, he's about to raise his hand. He's about to stand up and say, you know, I know you're going to kill me, but, you know, I am Spartacus. I'm not ashamed of what I've done. Mm -hmm. And no sooner has he opened his mouth than the voice you hear is not his. It's from a guy behind him saying, I am Spartacus. And then the guy to his left says, I am Spartacus. And before you know this, like thousands of guys. Right, a very, very archetypal moment in in Wonderful, wonderful moment. Stanley Kubrick was the director. Stanley Kubrick was the director. He was actually the last-minute substitution for Anthony Mann. So this is less of a Kubrick movie than just about any Kubrick movie um, you could you could name. Because while well, he's a massively gifted uh, artist and and you know compositional filmmaker, um, you know he didn't develop the script. Whereas if you look at this movie as a Dalton Trumbo movie, think of what it must have meant for Dalton Trumbo to write those lines after having been blacklisted for ten years, mm-hmm. after having been unable to see his own name on the screen for that long, dark, dishonest decade. A man trying to take, you know, claim for his own work and unable to, and yet the people around him are standing up for him. I think that becomes a very different, much deeper scene if you look at it as, you know, something as the creation of Dalton Trumbo than it ever could have been if you look at it as a, as a, as a you know, the, the head birth of, De- of Stanley Kubrick. Sure, and you're saying that because the, the, the screenwriter in that case had to uh, uh, publish his work publishes his his scripts uh, under assumed names and uh, in by with fronts with friends of his uh, getting a check I guess and then passing along the money to him because he had been blacklisted Yes, that's exactly it. That's how it worked in the case of a movie that uh, Trumbo had written years before, uh, Roman Holiday, a very different picture. Um, but yeah, he didn't get his name on that movie as the author of the original story until the Writers Guild um, put together an entire committee to you know, give credit where credit was due on this whole, you know, decade worth of movies where in many cases, you know, the the credits did not tell the whole story. Not that they ever tell the whole story. I'm not naive about that. I'm just saying, you know, wouldn't it be nice if, you know, an entirely different commission could be impaneled by the Writers Guild giving credit to the writers of the 30s and 40s whose names were omitted from the movies, not because, you know, they were too far to the left, but more often than not because, you know, Harry Cohn or Louis B. Mayer, one of the studio heads, uh, you know, um, you know, on a whim decided to give credit to his, uh, you know, to his nephew uh, instead. You know, there's a whole new, uh, uh, you know, uh, a shelf of films uh, that are just waiting 
to have you know their credits reapportioned more honestly mm. um and uh, I, I think you know we would wind up with um, not just uh, you know truer credits because of it but a better idea of who's responsible for you know the joy these movies have given us over the years and you're bringing up those uh, those major uh, uh you know corporate figures who ran the movies reminds me that maybe uh, I wanted to bounce the idea off of you that that perhaps the the director getting some more credit than the writer might have something to do with a sort of executive theory of of uh of the the business model that movies sort of yeah. find themselves in there you know we shouldn't deceive ourselves that the uh, auteur theory and, you know, on, you know, I should be so lucky, the, the Schreiber theory are the only two ways to describe what uh, David Thompson, great San Francisco writer on film, has famously described, quoting F. Scott Fitzgerald, as the whole equation. In fact, there's a theory uh, that a fellow named Thomas Schatz came up with called The Genius of the System, where he says the authors of these movies, notwithstanding the contributions of individual filmmakers, are the studios themselves. These wonderful corporate uh, entities mm. that grew up and eventually decayed over the course of the 20th century, but, you know, enabled us to recognize the gloss of an MGM picture, the grit of uh, a Warner Brothers picture. And, you know, there's a case to be made for that. But I would much rather ask myself, well, who was in the uh, Warner Brothers writer's room? What was it about the brothers Epstein who wrote Casablanca that enabled that movie to become, you know, through all of its creative tribulations? And this was a movie that was not destined, either, either it was not destined to be a classic because everybody feared the worst for it all along, or somehow how it had to be a classic despite all the various uh, permutations that it went through, that threatened through miscasting, through rewriting, through, uh, you know, all of the various, you know, exigencies of film production to derail it. Somehow or other, a masterpiece got made, and I think it's foolish to, you know, uh, deceive ourselves into thinking that the contributions of the Epstein brothers, whose other movies are eminently worth looking at, uh, or Howard Koch, their, their uh, you know, co-credited screenwriter on the picture, to, to fool ourselves into thinking that these people are just sort of lucky bystanders and that Michael Curtiz, a man whose English was not even all that good, he was a Hungarian immigrant, mm -hmm. uh, a very talented one from a, a, a directorial standpoint, but no whiz with dialogue, that these, that, that, that man is responsible for the, you know, the lines and the scenes that we cherish today, I, I just think that, that it's, uh, it's, it's disingenuous at best. Right, that, I guess that movie, when it comes down to it, the memory of that movie sort of goes, um, they file it under a Bogart film more than anything yeah yeah all too well. and you know i'm not oh, about to to take anything away from humphrey bogart not only was he a great iconic gifted uh screen persona but not a bad screenwriter in his own right you know the last line of the maltese falcon uh -huh. um the 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 uh the swipe from shakespeare where he holds up the as it's turned out to be you know the the uh you know the lead yeah. falcon spoiler alert uh, it's a fake acronym yeah. And he says, yeah, this is, you know, these are the stuff that dreams are made of, which is from, what, Midsummer Night's Dream? Um, you know, it's, it's a great line. And, you know, John Huston, the writer-director, was absolutely right to leave it in. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Huston being, you know, famously uh, undervalued by the auteurists precisely because he did so many adaptations, so many great literary adaptations. No filmmaker has ever uh, had the regard for literature, both American literature and world literature, that John Huston did. But because his movies are all different, they punish him for it. Unlike Hitchcock and Hawks, who, with great distinction, tended to make, if not the same movie over, over and over again, at least revisit the same themes over and over again. Huston, because all his movies 
are kind of different. Although if you look at them uh, from a certain perspective, there are themes that do in fact crop up over and over again. Mm-hmm. He was written off by the auteurist as a second-ranked director. But his but his movies are very enjoyable to watch still. They're I, tremendously enjoyable and enjoyable for because of their writerly virtues. This was a guy who, along with, and I bet you'll be surprised, one other great filmmaker had like six or eight nominations, the most of anybody over the years, for Best Screenplay. Mm-hmm. The other one is Fellini. So a lot of your energy in the book and, of course, on this radio program that we're speaking about is, is sort of um, looking backwards at film history or back at the... I guess the first half of movies almost. Um, but how would you, David Kippen, apply your Schreiber theory uh, where the writer deserves a little bit more credit for, for the collaborative process that filmmaking is? The writer should maybe even be considered, sometimes with some movies, the primary author of those movies. Um, how would you apply it to, to movies that are, that are on the screen today? Oh, um, I, I'm, I'm only too ready to do that. I think it's been a mistake over the years. There was, there was a very good film critic, Richard Corliss, came out with a comparable screenwriter-centered theory of film years ago in a book called Talking Pictures, but he kept talking about the classics, and he wasn't talking about contemporary movies. And unless a theory helps to explain not just the movies of the past, but the movies of the present day, it's a dead theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, look at somebody like Charlie Kaufman, the only, mercifully, blessedly, the only screenwriter that people whose names you know, smart-thinking moviegoers can actually recognize, you know, his movies are so thematically cohesive. This is the guy whose first smash, I guess you'd have to say, was being John Malkovich, but went on to write the scripts for the, you know, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Adaptation, did become a director in one instance so far, uh, the very ambitious picture, Synecdoche, New York, uh, which I quite like, but I, I consider I consider writers becoming directors as, you know, potentially a distraction from what they ought to be doing. And for that, my, my best example is a screenwriter from who we haven't heard enough lately, and that's Robert Town. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a guy who wrote three masterpieces in two years in the early 1970s, not just Chinatown, but the last detail and uh, a good half uh, or more with Warren Beatty of Shampoo. Then he decided he wanted to be a director. And I actually like the movies he directed more than most people. I like Tequila Sunrise. I like Personal Best. But he went from writing three terrific pictures in two years to writing and directing what? three, four, over the course of the next 25. Mm-hmm. And I guess you know? what, what you're saying is that if the culture, uh, both both the, 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 the art culture, the appreciation and the glory he might have received, but maybe also just the dollar value of what he was contributing to these movies, uh, if he had been appreciated more for writing them, then he might have stuck to writing and we would have many more uh, Robert Town films. That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, if you, know, if you hadn't been brainwashed by all of the publicity about... You know, Roman Polanski's Chinatown or, or Hal Ashby's The Last Detail and, uh, and Shampoo. If instead these movies had been recognized as, you know, Robert Town's dyspeptic love letter to the Los Angeles of his youth, if that had been, uh, you know, the way, um, uh, Chinatown was sold and if, you know, Shampoo had been Robert Town's Shampoo, then maybe there would have been the appetite out there for more movies written by Robert Town and he wouldn't have felt in self-defense that he had to become a director, a profession for which I think, while he has certain gifts, is not really playing to his strength like, like screenwriting was. 
Well, we've been speaking with David Kippen. He's the uh, former director of literature at the NEA, and he also was a former book critic at the San Francisco Chronicle. He's joining us by phone from Los Angeles where he's writing uh, for a living, if I'm not mistaken. And we've been talking about his 2006 book, The Schreiber Theory. Schreiber is Yiddish for writer. It's a radical rewrite of American film history. David, in the minute that we have left... um, I guess one thing we could talk about is the that you've you've gotten a little bit of hostility uh, has bubbled up from reviewers, both uh, official reviewers and online folks that that sort of um, uh, shake a fist at you and grumble about um, <laughs> about you know not not well, admitting folks, that that movies are a collaborative effort and and why should as, writers get all the credit? As as a great writer uh, named Cole Porter once said, they all laughed at Christopher Columbus, too. And the epigraph for my book, of course, is from Copernicus, Uh, you know, the guy who had the nerve to say that maybe instead of, you know, the the sun revolving around the earth, it's the other way around. I mean, to be quite frank with Lee, you know, the Schreiber theory is not proposed with a completely straight face. As much as anything, it's a parody of the auteur theory. If it seems a little silly, it's designed in part to point out how silly the auteur theory is, because filmmaking is, not to invoke the cliché, above all, a collaborative art. Right, and so maybe if, if people start just noticing the writers of these movies, we can we can move towards um, some better movies to watch. Dave, David Kippen, thank Hopefully, you so much. That's all I want out of this. I want better movies every Friday night. Me too. David Kippen, thanks so much for joining us today on Cover to Cover Open Book. It's been fun. I enjoyed it, Eric. Great. My name is Eric Klein. I've been your host today for Open Book. Stay tuned. Coming up next is Free Speech Radio News. Other Minds presents the first showing in America of a monumental new film about the music and life of radical American composer Edgar Varese. Varese, the composer whose music inspired the young Frank Zappa, is brought to life in this intense documentary by Dutch filmmaker Frank Scheffer. Edgar Varese, The One All Alone, shows once only on April 19th, Monday, 7.30 at the Sundance Kabuki Cinemas in San Francisco. Seating limited, tickets $20, full information at otherminds.org. Director Sheffer and composer Tso Wensung will travel here to speak after the showing. That's Monday, April 19th, a benefit for Other Minds.